Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 32 of 1951 Down Place. I'm one of your hosts, Derek M. Cook. And as Scott and Casey mentioned last month in episode 31, we're changing up the production duties a little bit here at your home of Hammer Films Discussion. Now, in the past, I've handled the bulk of the audio production. However, we're going to change things up a little bit, and instead of Scott doing his amazing intro this time around, you get me. Scott's going to be doing the editing on the actual discussion of the film, and what film is that? It is The Evil of Frankenstein. This film was the third Frankenstein film that Hammer put together. It's kind of sort of a sequel, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in the actual discussion. I don't want to spoil what we're going to talk about when we start talking about the evil of Frankenstein. Really? Anyway, even though this isn't technically a sequel, it still has Peter Cushing returning to play Baron Frankenstein. And as I'm going to say in the discussion proper, I loved the opening credit sequence in The Evil of Frankenstein. Okay, is that how we're going to do this? Really? Evil of Frankenstein. Evil of Frankenstein. (sighs) You know, there's really not that much more for me to say anyway, so why don't we go ahead and get to our discussion of the Evil of Frankenstein. Right after this. miles of bad road and now they have a microphone and their own show it's the daily grindhouse podcast the official podcast of dailygrindhouse.com starring g you tell that bitch who sent you here how sorry i am i can no longer be her friend and the man called perry i'm the one that killed monday whooped and put wins in the hospital all the birds did a tell five did not the birds said your son Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation, cinema, and beyond. Featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forster, Brian Trenchard-Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. <clears throat> well, uh, we'll get him someday. We promise. I mean, we promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. You are interrupting my work. Your work. The work. The devil. Hands, please, Father. Ah. Luke, no. The evil of Frankenstein. 
the evil of a man who created a monster by crude surgery and harnessed the tempestuous forces of nature to give it life. The evil of Frankenstein unleashed a monster that terrorized the whole community. Peter Cushing as the Baron, and Peter Woodthorpe as the ruthless Professor Zoltan, who fought the Baron for control of the monster. Oh, he'll understand you, all right. He just won't obey you. That's all. Duncan Lamont as the Chief of Police. Katie Wilde and Sandorells as two young people caught up in the evil of Frankenstein. Before we get started with the episode proper here at 1951 Downplace, I want to go ahead and take a second to thank my co-host, Casey Criswell and Scott Morris, for taking the responsibility of last month's episode on themselves and just banging it out of the park, catching up with some feedback and allowing me to take some time off to deal with a lot of family things going on. So, Casey, Scott, thank you. Casey, do you recognize that voice? No. I don't know who that is. Then I'm going right Ah. back to bed. (laughs) <laughs> not a problem, sir. We had fun doing it. Say that again? Yes. Not a problem, sir. We had fun doing no, no, it. just the sir part. Just the sir part. <laughs> oh, not a problem, go. you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's Casey Scott. This is Derek. How's it going, everybody? It's Sunday morning, and it's early, and, well, you know how that works. And I'm feeling very nominated. I feel very nominated, too. Is there a certain flavor to your feelings of nomination, Scott? Uh, some sort of Parsec flavor? Ooh. You should have that looked at. <laughs> I, I love some fresh parsecs. Especially in the morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the smell of parsecs in the morning. Wow. Well, what my co-hosts are referring to is that 1951 Down Place ended up on the ballot for the Parsec Awards. Parsec Awards, it's a celebration of spec fiction podcasting. For the most part, the categories are things like best audio drama. And however, there are a couple of categories about fan topics, uh, fan service. That doesn't quite sound right. Well, there are a couple of categories uh, that honor podcasts. Derek is our fan service to you folks, just so you know. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> there, there are a couple of He categories. gets really good fan service. Okay, you know what? You guys talk about it. <laughs> Go back to my coffee. You go ahead, Parsec nominees. Well, they do have categories in there. Best Speculative Fiction Fan or News Podcast. And let's see. There's also the Best Speculative Fiction Fan or... Pod, oh, in specific and then general. And I believe we ended up in the, was it the specific category? Well, we actually get to choose what, what category we want to be in. So I think that's oh, the one. I want to be in all of them. <laughs> we can only choose one. And I think that's the one that we've chose that we're going to compete in. So we'd also like to thank uh, the listeners who nominated us. We're very humbled with that. Right. Yeah. The way you end up on the ballot is that somebody contacts the Parsec Awards folks and 
tells them about the show. And I know I didn't do it. So somebody else had to. So whoever did it, thank you. Yes, we do appreciate it. And that goes right along with our uh, Rondo Award nomination that uh, we talked about uh, last month. So you can go over to ParsecAwards.com to learn all about that. You can go to RondoAward.com to learn about the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. And vote for us. Yeah, if you haven't voted for anybody in the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards yet, there's still time. But not much. By the time this episode goes out, you only have a few days. The deadline for that ballot is May 5th. And as I've been saying over on my other podcast, Monster Kid Radio, which was also nominated, uh, (laughs) go check out the ballot and just take a look at everything that happened last year that you missed. This ballot is filled with magazines, books, movies, original cover art, toys, all things that have to do with these classic monster movies and sometimes more modern monster movies that we all love. I know that I look forward to the ballot every year because it always tells me what I've missed and gives me an opportunity to go on like a little weird scavenger hunt to go on eBay or go check out the different magazines' websites to try to pick up what I missed. And I'm always happy to to see this list of the best of 2013 on the ballot. And not only is uh, Derek's Monster Kid Radio nominated, but so is Casey. And I'm sure Casey wants to talk about that. I was going to go uh, there. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, you weren't. I know how you are. <laughs> You're hedging your bets against Monster Kid Radio. My other show, Bloody Good Horror, is also uh, nominated in the same category with 1951 Downplays and Derek's uh, Monster Kid Radio. So the odds are stacked against uh, the competition between me and Derek there. So that's a good sign. If you can't decide which one of the two you want to vote for, vote for Downplace because I have no there other dog in the fight. So Yes. <laughs> so when you go to vote, remember, vote for Scott. Right. <laughs> Now, you you can't go wrong with voting for, for any one of them, especially <laughs> down place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can't go wrong with voting for any of them as long as it's down place. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most humble podcast out there. In all honesty, thanks, everybody, for uh, nominating us. We, uh, we really appreciate it. It is a cool ballot. Go check it out. And uh, we'll try to make sure there's a link in the show notes. Uh, well, the Rondo Awards, as well as the Parsecs. I mean, the Parsecs, once we're on the ballot, it's kind of out of everybody's hand. It's up to the Parsec committee. But we'll still put a link up there so that people can check it out and see all the other shows and how the whole thing works. Are you guys about ready to jump back into a normal episode after we did our feedback last month? Let's just do all feedback and drop the movies. Okay, we have no new feedback, so I guess the show's over. <laughs> bye bye <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> so this is an episode that Scott's going to be doing the most of the production on. He's going to be doing the edit. So uh, we got to give him something to work with, Casey. I am. No, oh. Scott and I had a, <laughs> Scott and I had a meeting about that while you're gone. Oh, suppose I ought to listen to the show, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. So this is the Evil of Frankenstein from 1964. Now, with the Frankenstein and Dracula films, we're kind of bouncing all over the place a little bit. The other franchises in the Hammer catalog we're trying to do chronologically, the Robin Hood films, the Mummy films, we're trying to do in order. But we didn't decide to do that when we started covering Frankenstein and Dracula. So this is actually the third film in the Hammer Frankenstein film series. We've covered other Frankenstein films. However, we've done Frankenstein Created Woman, for example, which I believe was the fourth. I'd have to double check it still early, and I'm not done with one cup of coffee yet so this is the third film the third time peter cushing would come to play the baron for hammer and this comes about a couple of years after hammer kind of started to not do hammer i'm sorry horror films 
there was a period where Hammer just was focusing on the suspense thrillers, swashbuckling adventure films, things along those lines, and a couple of different reasons for it. One of them being the British Film Board was really kind of breathing down Hammer's neck. Just wasn't too on board with some of the more horror aspects that Hammer was known for, which would put Hammer on the map, which I'm sure had to be frustrating for Michael Carreras and company because, I mean, that's what made their money. That's what made them such a successful company in the 50s. And to have the British Horror Film Board, I'm sorry, the British censors coming down on them, it had to be a little hamstringing. But things change. A couple of years go by, somebody else takes over the, the censor board and Hammer wants to do a horror film and they want to bring Cushing back to the fold. Now, I do want to say real quick that this is not the third time Hammer went back to the Frankenstein well because there was a TV series that was supposed to get off the ground. After Curse and Revenge, they did talk about doing a television series with screen gems in Hollywood. Half of the series would be shot in Hollywood. Half of it would be shot in the UK by Hammer. Only one episode was produced called Tales of Frankenstein, and it turns up on a bunch of public domain collections. I think I picked up the DVD itself uh, for like a buck or two at Target around Halloween a few years ago. It's not great, but it is a Hammer project, sort of. It doesn't have Peter Cushing. It doesn't have anybody involved with it. The reason I bring it up is because one of the scripts for this Frankenstein series did feature a character called Zoltan, which is a name that would be, I suppose, recycled for the evil of Frankenstein. The character was different. He wasn't a hypnotist, but he was one of the stars of one of the episodes, one of the leads of one of the episodes. I would like to see those scripts just to kind of check it out. I started reading some of the synopses in the various resource books that we have here. And there's Frankenstein playing with voodoo and there's zombies in one. And it just would have been interesting to see all this, this different take on the Frankenstein story. But it didn't go very far. It didn't do very well. And they didn't develop a serious past the pilot. Well, you had mentioned that they had gone away from doing the horror films you know this film in 64 wasn't the only horror film that they did they also jumped back in with the gorgon that mm -hmm. same year that we covered back in january and they also did the curse of the mummy's tomb that same year so they did dive right back into the horror genre uh, with both feet this year yeah they, they dove right in they announced uh, on mid 1963 that they were going to do she, Blood of the Foreign Legion, Quatermass in the Pit, and Brainstorm. Brainstorm never happened. They also did a promotion where people were able to write in a plot synopsis and a title. If you're a fan of Hammer and you wanted to see what their next movie would be, well, you got to suggest what it would be. And a lot of people said, well, we want a horror movie. Is that where this film came from? Was it? Not quite. This film's got a, a different uh, sort of genesis that would make it feel just out, out of sort as Scott's kind of implying here. But I've been talking a lot. Somebody else say something. 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 And that's why we were nominated for a Parsec, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's kind of eerie that we both did that. <laughs> <laughs> so as Derek said, this is like their third outing into the dive into the theatrical Frankenstein well. But they're also not sticking quite to the canon they'd set up because there was a jump between this and Revenge of Frankenstein, if I believe, mm -hmm. or if I'm correct. Because at the end of Revenge and Frankenstein, we saw where Frankenstein's brain, Dr. Frankenstein was, there was some cloning and everything else going on in the storyline. And here they've kind of washed that away. So I don't know that you could say that this is, it follows exactly in the timeline. There really wasn't a timeline. I mean, this is a different time for 
film and franchises and things like that. There wasn't video. Right. Things didn't turn up on television. So how I, I'd have to check the years, but many years passed between Revenge and The Evil of Frankenstein. So when you go back to the theater to watch Evil of Frankenstein, the last time you saw Revenge of Frankenstein, if you even seen it at all, was years ago. So, That's true. So, you know, the desire to have a, a solid link continuity-wise, I suppose, wouldn't necessarily be very high. Yes, the Revenge of Frankenstein was from 58. So it's been, wow, what's that, six years? Yeah, six years, and it's not like they had the internet or DVDs back there to refresh their memory. For us, though, and our fans that are going back there diving into Hammer stuff, they that may throw some people with some confusion. Yeah. But yeah, it's important to say to remember that back then they couldn't, you know, the continuity wasn't quite as important. Which is unfortunate. I like to have things all kind of tied up and tied together. And to me, I mean, it's still a franchise. It's still a series. It's the third Frankenstein movie, and I'll make them make sense in my head one way or the other. But yeah, there there are some definitive things about this Frankenstein that are very different than what we saw in the previous two films. Well, the other big major change for this film is they actually got permission and uh, partnered up with Universal. The um, Where Frankenstein made its biggest mark, Universal actually distributed the film, and they were able to use some elements from their Frankenstein uh, films for this film. The biggest one being the creature itself. Exactly. As we talked about when we did Curse and Revenge, uh, specifically when we did Curse, Hammer intentionally steered away from anything that would make their Frankenstein feel like the Karloff film. The Jack Pierce makeup design was copyrighted or trademarked or protected legally. They had lawyers watching what they were doing. Even though the original source material was public domain, they didn't want to have any problems. Well, since Universal is going to distribute this film, they had no problem with Hammer co-opting a few elements from the Universal Frankenstein series to better or worse effect, I suppose. Well, I figured they probably got one of the uh, the lunch boxes they were selling at the time of Frankenstein and used that. <laughs> we're referring to poor Kiwi Kingston's makeup. This is the Frankenstein monster, I think. Oh, yeah. Hey, if, you're, if you're, you know, creating your own monster, why wouldn't you build in some extra storage space? <laughs> I love Hammer, and I love the Hammer Frankenstein movies because of Peter Cushing and his portrayal of Dr. Frankenstein, but I've never been much of a fan of any of Hammer's Frankenstein makeups. And some of that goes from the fact that for a long time they couldn't use any designs similar to Universal's with Karloff and everything like that, and you know they suffered from that. But then once they got the opportunity to use it, I imagine it's because they couldn't go in and copy it directly that they had to come up with something similar, but it just did not work out well for him in my mind. If you, if you would have redone the forehead, which does look like about the size of a lunchbox stuck in there, the rest of it was pretty well done. I thought it's just the forehead overshadows everything else on, on his face. I mean, he looks like he, and that's because it juts about six inches forward and just, he can't get light past it. <laughs> yes. And, it, and it's flat. I mean, it's, it looks like he ran forehead first into a wall at high speed. It helps keep the rain out of his eyes. I don't necessarily have a problem with that kind of flat top thing on the front of his face, because I, I kind of know that a little bit about what went into that, that it was kind of designed to, instead of having the flat top on the top of the head where you would open up the top of the head and put the brain in, to me, it looks like it's got maybe a, a hinging action thing going on on the front that if you 
cut up those shoelace looks to sutures. You could flip the front of the head off and get in there and do whatever. And that's why it's all big and bulky. The thing about that makeup design is that they had Roy Ashton start sketching up potential designs based on the Frankenstein monster. And one source I have tells me that this was the 112th design. Did they just finally give up at that point? Another source that I have here says that he sketched it 200 times. That blows my mind. Cause it, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, again, I don't have a, as big a problem with the flat top. My issue is that it looks like somebody just stuck his head in some wet paper mache. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It looks like paper mache. It, except, close. Yeah, except for when you get the super, super close up and you see his chin's just fine. You know, there's a definite, definitive change in texture between the chin and everything else. And it just, to me, looks, this isn't going to sound disrespectful, but amateur. Like, it's amateur hour. Like, they just, yeah, whatever. It, and to me, even if you got close up, I mean, I know this is nitpicky, but you get close, really close up. And if you look at his eyes, you can almost tell it almost looks like a paper mache mask sitting over his face because you can see the gaps between like the whatever materials on the outside and, and his skin around the eyes and whatnot. Yeah, it doesn't blend very well. I guess I'm I'm willing to give that a little bit more of a pass when you figure we're watching it on a lot better equipment than people in the 60s were watching it on. So they, true, may, true. they may not have seen as much of the bad details that we can pick out today. I, I just can't get past that forehead, literally or figuratively. And it sounds funny to say this, and it's not just being a smart-assy remark, but it did depend on the angle that they shot that forehead at. Sometimes it looked all right if they caught it at the right angle, but when they were up close and whatnot, it was kind of it was weird. But that's not the only element in this film that feels universal to me. There's a lot going on here that feels very universal. Uh, something that I was reading goes on about the lab feeling like a universal lab. I didn't get that as much because we've talked about how much we love the lab set in Curse of Frankenstein. And I actually prefer that lab set to this lab set. That might just be me. But I know Freddie Francis actually increased the budget and poured extra money into the lab just to really amp it up. I felt like the lab felt very claustrophobic, so I didn't get a really universal feel from that. But in terms of story structure and other characters, it felt very universal. It felt like an updated color version of some of the films in the later Frankenstein cycle from Universal with you know the town celebration and the Burgermeister kind of being this inadequate leader, ineffective leader. This other thing, uh, the Zoltan character that appears in this film felt very much like a, a later Karloff character in the other Frankenstein films. And I'm not talking about the monster, but he does return as somebody else. It just felt different to me from the hammer mold. It felt more universal. Speaking of the lab itself and in, in its tie-ins with Universal, the use of lightning is what really tied it to Universal to me. True. I don't remember in any of the previous Hammer Frankenstein films, I mean, electricity was used, but I don't remember any actual lightning being used. So that was very universal to me. We need to give him a shock. We just yeah. shot him full of lightning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did like the, the first lab that he has that they show, and it's a, a mill that they've redone to create electricity. I did like that, but then when he goes into his flashback and his first creation... It was all lightning. It was very universal to me. Now, I have not seen any of the later Frankenstein universal. There's a lot of the elements that, that you just mentioned that really kind of hurt this film in my mind. So if they're, if they're coming from later universal films, that doesn't give me a whole lot of desire to see those films. They're good. They're good. Trust me. 
<laughs> I'm a professional. <laughs> I'm a Rondo Hatton Award nominated horror movie podcaster. You know, Monster Kid Radio. I'll tell you, those rankings. I, I don't know. Well, they even went when this film was eventually played on television. They actually went in and shot some new, some more footage, and some of this extra footage, which I'd love to see further apes the earlier Frankenstein films with some flashback stuff with the Frankenstein monster walking around. You just see his big feet and then you see a little girl that he comes up on, uh, a younger version of the beggar girl from this film, in fact, and they kind of explain why she's deaf and dumb and mute and everything else. And that to me read just like the little girl that Karloff throws in the lake. Spoiler. I would definitely like to see those too because that, that character in this film they should have cut it. She was horrible. And I, I don't know what she was there for. They needed some women in this movie. and No, they don't. <laughs> well, I agree. Well, it's Hammer. Yeah. But still, she, she brought nothing to this film. And maybe if I knew a little bit of backstory and if she was tied to the creature at some point, it might have made more sense. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the impression I got is they were going through the whole thing that that was... Because they showed her sitting and talking to it, so that was the one person. I, well, well it doesn't talk. make any sense because we don't have any connection to the user because she was talking to the creature and everything. But then uh, again, we uh, don't know uh, her past, uh, so yeah. who cares if she was talking to the creature or not? Right. Yeah, I got more of an impression of the the blind character in Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah. Well, there are very few women in the movie. You got the beggar girl, and then you had the Burgermaster's wife, played by Karen Gardner, who pretty much summed it up. You know, I just said a second ago, you need a woman in the film. Scott said, no, you don't. Well, in an interview, Karen Gardner says, these Hammer films were all cleavage and screams, and you can't have cleavage without having a couple of women in the movie. And uh, she she does have a lot of cleavage in this film. Well, I, I would agree. If you're going to have cleavage and screams, but they don't have screams because... She- I know. But you do have cleavage. I will. I will give. I'll grant you that there was plenty of cleavage in this film. Scott has just granted me cleavage. <laughs> all right, all right. Ah, <laughs> uh, and she does have a lot. But that's the, her only purpose in this film. All right. So it's directed by Freddie Francis, who directed some films that Scott really likes. Paranoiac, T- uh, Taste of Fear, are both Freddie Francis uh, productions. Terrence Fisher was originally on board to direct this film, but. There were some other things going on. He couldn't make it happen schedule-wise. I was trying to find out what he was working on instead of this film, and I can't really find much in terms of why exactly he didn't do this movie. He was at one point attached to the Crater Mass in the Pit uh, around this time, and I don't know. Did he end up directing that one as well, Scott? Do you know? Uh, no. Roy Ward Baker directed that. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it probably would have been better if Fisher had directed it because Fisher always brought that kind of fairy tale quality and succeeded whereas i feel like francis tried to do that in this and didn't it was produced by anthony hines this was his 50th film for hammer he also wrote the film but he did not like seeing the same name over and over and over again in the credits so he used a screen name of john elder and of course we mentioned peter cushing uh we mentioned the cleavage who also we need to mention of the cast i suppose there's a hans character it's not the same hans from the previous film played by Sandora Ellis, and then Zoltan the Hypnotist, played by Peter Woodrup. Any other characters of note we should mention? Well, we've got to do my James Bond connection. (laughs) (laughs) And boy, did I have to dig for this one. And I'm going to go, I've got three. Anthony Blackshaw. Now, he played one of the policemen uh, in the scene where Frankenstein sees the Burgermeister in the bar 
he's one of the policemen that goes after uh, Frankenstein, and he also shows up later in the film when they um, enter the house to arrest Frankenstein. He also plays an RAF uh, base guard in 65's Thunderball. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> he's not on screen very long in that film. Also, uh, Will Cartledge, he was the assistant director for this film. He was also the assistant director on 1967's You Only Live Twice, and he was the associate producer on 77's The Spy Who Loved Me and 79's Moonraker. And my third connection, besides being a James Bond connection, I can also connect him to my other podcast, Disney Indiana. And that's Peter Diamond, the stuntman on this film. He also was a stuntman on 1985's A View to a Kill for James Bond, but he's probably best known uh, work t- deals with uh, Disney as he was the stunt coordinator on both Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back and the stunt coordinator for Return of the Jedi and the stunt arranger for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he was the stunt arranger on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I was going to say that was a little tenuous tying it into uh, Disney with the Star Wars stuff since that's all recent and everything. But then you wrapped it up with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It was yeah. Very nicely done. Well done. Well done. So this, I'm thinking this is one of his earlier roles, but he's he's a famous uh, British stuntman, and he's got tons of credits. So are we ready to get into the film itself? I love the opening credits. <laughs> and why do you love the opening credits? I love the font. It's cool. <laughs> I actually did find the font. You can find it online. <laughs> In the past, Casey has made comments to me. Well, Derek always brings the deep cuts to him. Scott's talking about the font. Well, maybe he's challenging your throne. Okay. I actually did like what I would consider the, I don't know if you'd call it a pre-credit sequence, but actually the, the, the very beginning of the film that really doesn't tie into the rest of the film. What do they call that in the James Bond films? Because that's what they do. The pre-credit sequence. That's the, There's not like a special like pre-Bond or... Like the, the pre-Jimmy sequence or something? No, it's called the pre-credit sequence. Can, can we come up with something clever? But I, <clears> I, I, I really did like you know, the first scene. We see this cabin in the woods. Which was a matte painting by Les Bowie. Yep. Bowie. Yeah. But you see a, a grieving couple exit the, the property. The camera goes in and we see a body laying on a table in there. We also see a kind of shady looking character that's in the woods watching the the grieving couple leave. Then we go back inside. We see a little girl who's still in the house and she opens the door to peek in at the body just as that character had uh, the the shadowy character had opened a window and started pulling the body out the window. So the, the girl freaks out thinking the body has come back to life and goes running after the other couple. The shadowy character turns out to be basically like a grave robber or a body snatcher, and he throws the body over his shoulder and takes off into the night. The grieving couple returns with a priest. They find the cross that was sitting on the body left there on the table. The priest knows what's what's going on, uh, that there was a body snatcher that wasn't someone, you know, the body just leaving. So he goes off to find the body snatcher. The body snatcher shows up at Frankenstein's place to sell the body. And then this is where we see Frankenstein's first lab in the film, which is a very cramped lab. Now we see a lot of what look like aquariums with different body parts in them. Was that lab used in another Frankenstein movie? I remember the aquarium 
type setup in in other films, but I don't remember this one specifically. I remember the aquariums type setup, and I remember the escape hatch that they had built into that, that they were dumping bodies down into the stream. But I don't remember which one it was from. Well, the uh, the body snatcher gets his money, and they usher him out right away, just as, as Frankenstein is getting ready to cut the guy's heart out. Hey, what you gonna do now? Cut out his heart? Cut out his heart? Why not? He has no further use for it. So he does remove the heart. They put the heart into another one of the aquarium-type things. He turns on the mill to start uh, creating electricity, and they basically massage the heart and shock it to start beating again in the aquarium. And no sooner they start congratulating each other that the, the priest shows up because he had run into the body snatcher who told him what he did with the body, and the priest basically wrecks the lab. Now, this whole surgery thing with the pulling out the heart and all that, this is the opening credit, or, yeah, this is the credit sequence that I really like. Uh, it feels like it's just one continuous shot, isn't it? While he's while Pete Cushing is doing the removal, I suppose, pulling the heart out. and you know, we Did got you the, just call him Pete Cushing? Pete, yeah, Pete and I, we go way back. So Pete <laughs> Cushing and I, we're, we're hanging out in the lab, and he's pulling out the heart and all that, and the camera's just doing this slow move around him as he's doing the work on the corpse. I liked that a lot. Now, the music... Oh, I've been dying to know what you think of the music all the way through this film. I think, again, this is another one of those cases where the music is good, but doesn't necessarily fit the visuals as well as it could. I like that the music feels very adventurous and exciting and thrilling, but it feels like it would be more at home with what Hammer had been doing for the past couple of years, a thriller or adventure movie. Oh, it feels like a Robin Hood movie. Yeah, it really does yeah. feel like it belongs more in that kind of a film. Although I do like the disconnect between the over-the-top excitement adventure and then the slow camera moving around Pete Cushing as he's pulling the heart out of the chest. <laughs> I do like that. I like that shot. I, I'm a sucker for these long, drawn-out camera shots that have all this motion and movement happening. I was going to say, I love it when the cops show up, too, and then when he's, like, confronting Cushing and telling him how evil he is and everything he's doing is wrong, and then he just decides to start destroying stuff. That was a priest. That wasn't the cops. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It was a priest. But then he starts destroying the aquariums. He throws a heart on the ground. It's pretty uh, – that whole sequence is just really great, and it sucks you in with the tension and everything with it, too. It's the best part of the film, I think, is this whole opening bit. Before we move away from it, I do want to comment that Cushing asked for some cabbage on set. Did you, Have either one of you heard this? No. no. So just before he's about to cut into the body to pull the heart out, he's picking up the scalpel and he, you see him raise the scalpel and the camera tilts up a little bit so you don't have to see the scalpel actually touch the body as he's about to cut into it. But you know that's what he's going to do. And... Cushing wanted something on set for him to cut into, so he got some cabbage put on set so that when he cut into it, it made that kind of cutting flush sound and give him just a little bit of pressure or something for him to cut into, even though you don't see it. And they could have added something in in post. He wanted something on set that sounded like cutting into flesh as he was cutting into the body. Deep cut. Yes. <laughs> it also gave him something for his arm to work against. So it, yeah. it, it really looked like he was performing surgery. It was really well done. There's a documentary on the Blu-ray release of this, and somebody involved in the production, I forget who, talks about how Cushing would go to his doctor whenever he was about to do a Frankenstein film 
And it wasn't because he was sick, but it was because he wanted to ask his doctor, okay, if I'm going to take somebody's brain out of their head, how do I do it? And he would <laughs> always make sure that he was hold, holding the instruments just right, you know, and he would, he always looked like he knew what he was doing with those scalpels. And it's, it's Cushing, Pete, you know, doing his job. <laughs> But yeah, the priest shows up and the place burns down and then we go on to the rest of the film. And we find out at this point that Peter Cushing and Hans are out of money. The destroyed lab is, is pretty much broke them and their only escape is to head back to Karlstad, back to the Baron's castle to get its tapestries and uh, diamonds and paintings to sell them off to rebuild the lab. So they, they take off for, for Karlstad and at first... Frankenstein's figuring, you know, it's the middle of the day when they get there. There's everybody will be out in the fields, so they'll be able to sneak in through town to head up to the chateau and, and no problems. But uh, he gets there, and there's a big uh, festival going on. But uh, actually, that works in their favor as well because you know I'm not sure what the festival was, but I think it's the festival of drinking because it seemed like every single person was drinking heavily in the it's town. Europe, Scott. That's all they did back then, right? Wow. <laughs> So he was able to sneak through town with no problem. And this is another callback to the Universal films, and that's what I was getting at. I wasn't trying to. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, for example. There's this the the festival of wine. You know, they they're all in town drinking wine and singing and happy and having a big party. That's where I was going with that. Uh, so they're able to get through the town with no problem. They head back up to Frankenstein's castle. They find it the outside pretty much trashed you get through the front door and they find out that the house has been looted there isn't anything of value left i question frankenstein's logic here it'd been 10 years or so yeah i would think that he would have a caregiver or the house was locked or something mm -hmm. but yeah everything i mean the, the place you know if it would have been filmed today there'd have been graffiti painted on the walls it was that destroyed yeah, I was really shocked that he thought that everything would just be sitting around waiting for him to come up and sell. And then yeah. on top of that, where was he going to sell it? If he was this notorious mad scientist, what was he going to do with any of it once he got there? <laughs> it's not like he could have gone into town to sell it because they didn't want him in the town. So right, he, he exactly. Would have, he would have had to haul it, haul it away somewhere. And he and, didn't have the money to move it. So I don't know what he was thinking. And the carriage he had was just big enough for he and Hans so it's not like he could have carried much and it's just part of the film too where I felt like they if they wanted to they could have really tied this into the previous two Frankenstein films because he's talking about going back to his hometown and all this other stuff so he really could have tied it into the previous films instead of making up this other history for him but again we talked about why that didn't happen or why that wasn't necessarily a priority you know you're talking about tying it in the, the first thought I had when I saw the the inside of the castle is like no, wait a minute. This room wasn't there. This was set up this way. It's like it's not the same place. Exactly. And that and that bothered me quite a bit. But uh, they do find out uh, his lab is still there because he does uh, walk down into the basement. And at this point, Hans questions him. He Hans is getting suspicion that uh, Frankenstein did something really, really bad here. Frankenstein's never really told him what he's done. But for the fact that the castle is in such a bad shape and he's banned from, from Karlstad, something he must have done was horrible. So then we get this flashback that shows uh, Frankenstein creating his first, first creature. 
but it's not the scenes from the the first Frankenstein film. It's this is a whole brand new creature that he's creating, and this that bothered me a little bit. But you know, I understand they're they're not going to get Christopher Lee back to, for a cameo. Well, if we had Christopher Lee, we would have missed out on our opportunity to have Kiwi Kingston play the monster. Well, I didn't know that this creature was going to be the one that we're going to see the rest of the film either on the, on first watch. So Kiwi Kingston, according to the IMDb, he's an actor. Wasn't he a wrestler or he was, he was a New yeah. Zealand wrestler, a wrestler from New Zealand named Kiwi. And he appeared in this film and he appeared in hysteria the year later for hammer. And that's about it. He did one episode of the world of sport TV series in 1964 as well. I don't know anything about that. I don't think it was ABC's World of Sport. But uh, yeah, it was. Well, maybe it was. I don't know. Either way, they cast him for his size. That's what they've said is that he was this big hulking figure. They wanted somebody who was six foot four to play the monster. Again, they put that makeup on him to make him look like Karloff. They gave him big, thick boots like Karloff wore. Yeah. Another thing that I did not like about this flashback is it turned into a silent movie at this point. Because yeah. there's there's a good 15, 20 minutes, there's no dialogue. Yeah. We just see the lab. We see the experiment uh, with the lightning because of this big storm that's coming up that that raises the creature. We see the creature kind of wandering around the lab a little bit. We see his first uh, interaction with fire and how well that goes. Then the creature escapes and Frankenstein goes running after him. And he, the creature finds some lamb and starts killing them. And then some hunters and constables show up. They shoot the creature. They shoot Frankenstein in the arm. The creature climbs up in the mountains. And just as they're getting ready to shoot him, he falls off the back of the mountain. And then we're returned to, to present day where Frankenstein is telling Hans this story. I was arrested and charged with assaulting a police officer. And working against God. They ordered me to leave the town and never return. I had no money. I walked from the frontier. How did you exist then? I worked hands. I worked as a laborer, anything. I worked and I saved. I saved every penny until I could start again. And you know the rest, one failure after another and always hounded by these disbelievers. But I'm not beaten yet. It's only a matter of time. I'll prove my theory. I think you will. Wasn't he sentenced to death in the first movie? Yeah. Yeah. But no, he's just exiled from from Karlstadt at this point. You know, the movie's called The Evil of Frankenstein, but there's really not a lot of evil going on. And uh, I guess at least in terms of exiling him from town, it's not like, I don't know. Well, Frankenstein makes the point that he's not, trying to create a creature to attack or things he's trying to prove his theory that life there's just a spark of life and that you can recreate it with chemical reactions and everything which the basis of that that doesn't sound evil it's not like he's creating an army of creatures to attack Karlstadt or anything he's just trying to prove his theory but that would have been cool I think that is a modern movie Frankenstein's army so oh good point <laughs> Have you covered that on Bloody Good Horror, the Rondo Award-nominated horror podcast? No, we have not covered uh, it yet. <laughs> back to the evil of Frankenstein. <laughs> After uh, telling this uh, story of uh, his past, uh, Frankenstein's hungry. 
The so, story of Karlstad? Yes, the story of Karlstad. <laughs> uh, Frankenstein's now peckish, so he decides that they're going to go into town for dinner, which a town he's not allowed to go into. He really is just, he's got a set of balls, man. I know. He does not think this through trying you know, lay low and undercover thing. But they do put on those awesome masks. Nobody will recognize Pete Cushing when he wears that domino mask. There, yeah. <laughs> so they they go into they go into the to the to the bar there, which again this whole party is going on. Everybody's drinking, and the innkeeper comes up and he orders uh, or Frankenstein orders food and drink, and he gives him drink and he says we're not serving food anymore. And Frankenstein's like it's your duty to serve us food, and the guy and walks away. <laughs> So I don't know if he was ever going to get food or not. I was waiting for him, you know, undercover to go, do you know who I am? <laughs> I know, right? I mean, for somebody who's trying not to draw a lot of attention to himself. And then it gets worse because then he starts. Yeah, he sees the Burgermeister along with the several of the, the local police and the Burgermeister's uh, very well-endowed wife. And he sees the Burgermeister put his arm around his wife and the, the, the camera zooms in on the cleavage. But you also see the Burgermeister's hand. That ring. Well, what of it? That ring the Burgermeister's wearing. It's mine. You cannot do anything about it. He's stolen it. Keep your voice down. Subtle, Frank. It's very subtle. subtle. Yeah. yeah. You're blending in, buddy. I haven't seen this in any of the Frankenstein movies where he's gone this batshit crazy. Over little stuff. Over little stuff. Yeah, the 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 ring. the The cops come over and they chase him out, and they they realize who they think they know who he is. So they start chasing him, and they end up at a hypnotist show. They kind of sneak in the back, and they're standing in the back, and they're watching a guy uh, being hypnotized. The old standard. They he's now a, a chicken, so he's doing the chicken things, and then they. Hypnotist gets a giant hat pin and sticks it in the guy's arm, and the guy doesn't even blink. And then what? Which what I thought was funny. He says, "Now you are Frankenstein's creature," and he starts. Oh. Yeah, and another throwback to Universal because that was a Universal thing. You know, the walking around the hand in front of him. That yeah, which is how the creature walks in this film too. Right. The hypnotist tells the the guy that he's done, and go go back into the audience and have your friends tell him what. I told you, I had you do. <laughs> I like that line as well. So then he says, I needed for my next uh, trick. I need two volunteers. You two back in the back with the masks on. You come up, which of course is Frankenstein and Hans. So he, they come up on stage and he's getting ready to start uh, his act when the police bust in there and basically shut down the whole thing. And they start getting the people out of there. The hypnotist starts complaining and the police says, well, do you have a permit for your performance? He's still complaining and they about about being shut down, and you turn. They show the uh, stage again, and Frankenstein and Hans are gone. They've snuck out behind the curtain. Oh, Zoltan! <laughs> Zoltan the hypnotist, played by Peter Woodthorpe, who I don't think did much, if any, other work for Hammer. But I know he was in The Skull by Amicus, which is another Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee film, which is fantastic. Which I covered over on the Rondo Award-nominated podcast, uh, Monster Kid Radio, at one point. And if this would have been his only part in this film, I'd have been happy. If he never showed up one more time in this film, I would have been so happy. But he does come back. I did not like this character one bit. 
And I actually have a better way of redoing the second half of this film that would not involve him that I would much rather see. And I'll get into that later. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. But in another bold move after this. (laughs) Bold move. (laughs) Bold move, Frankenstein. That's right. He breaks into the Burgermeister's house. Oh, Lord. (laughs) And finds out there's more of his possessions in the house. You know, for somebody that is trying to be inconspicuous in town, he's failing on all levels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the police then bust in there and they actually get the mask off him at this point and they all now finally realize who he is. He it then, isn't that long, too. Yes. And then he locks himself in the bedroom and has what I thought was a great action cushioning moment. <laughs> Well, and this is, uh, this, yeah. this, this sequence is one of my favorites in the movie because the Burgermeister's wife is just cracks me up because, I don't know, she doesn't seem like she's real into acting the part. She looks like she's just having a blast sitting in bed with her cleavage hanging out and watching the spectacle of everybody acting around her because she's got a big goofy grin on her face the entire time. Peter Cushing, Even Peter when Cushing. She, even when she's screaming, Peter Cushing slams the door and says, shut up, woman! And... To confront the Burgermeister. And then in the later scene, when we have Peter Cushing's action moment going out the window, <laughs> which was fantastic, with the whole time in her bed sliding across the floor of the room, she's just got a big goofy grin on her face, like, oh, this is fun. Yeah, he took the bed sheets, tied them into a rope, <laughs> tied it to himself, tied it to the bed, and then jumped off the balcony. Be- right after he tosses over his shoulder, goodbye. And then. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> See, this is Hammer, you know, this is the swashbuckling films they were doing for the past couple of years bleeding into this. It's awesome. <laughs> you, you know, back when we talked about Cash on Demand and we talked about it a little bit last week that we wanted to have, you know, the action cushing diehard moment with the explosion behind him jumping off the building. I was like, oh, all we were missing was the explosion in this scene. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been epic. <laughs> But that, that's one of two action cushing moments in the film, and we'll get to the other one later. But <laughs> Oh, the other one's great, too. Not as, not as great because it's missing the cleavage, but more dangerous. More dangerous, yes. The Baron returns back to his house. No, no, I'm sorry. He doesn't return back to his house. He gets chased out of town, he and Hans, at this point, and chased up into the mountains, where they run into a deaf, mute beggar girl that would... We had been introduced to earlier because there, were, there was a bunch of guys playing keep away with her bowl. She's a deaf mute, and I don't know if she's living in the mountains or whatever, but she basically tells them where her cave is just as this big storm is coming. She's motioning them in, and the three of them spend the night in the cave to get out of the rain. And while he's in the cave the next morning, he hears this mumbling, and this is uh, Frankenstein, and he kind of follows her voice finding the uh, back of the glacier that's on the other side of the mountain, and he screams for Hans. Hans, get in here! Hans comes running in there. They look up, and there is his creature from the story he was telling earlier, who had fallen off the back of the mountain, but obviously had fallen into the glacier, and now he was frozen in the ice in this cave. How convenient. Well, that's another throwback to Universal. At one point, the monster does fall into some water at the end of one of the films and is frozen to be revived in the following film. They set up a big fire to melt the ice to get him out of there. They take him back to the lab. The lab is in really bad shape because it's obviously been kind of tore up. 
but it's in good enough shape that he's they're able to get the the lightning rod on top of the building up. They get the everything hooked up, hook up the terminals, the the plus and the minus just right so they can jump start him. Yeah, pretty convenient that all that stuff worked after sitting and rotting for ten years. Well, apparently the, and that the, the burger mice and the burgermeister looted everything except for any of the equipment. Yeah, I was gonna say apparently the town wasn't interested in the equipment. Well, when they go back to the lab too, the beggar girl's now part of the group. She's like the unofficial extra extra assistant. I don't know. Uh, did did we say who played her? Katie Wilde was the actress. Did we mention that? No, we didn't. She did because <laughs> Scott didn't like her. Uh, <laughs> She had a lot of television. Uh, she was in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, which was by Amicus, starring Peter Cushing, directed by Freddie Francis. Uh, one of Amicus's best, if you ask me. She could speak in that. Yeah. Why did they make her gray? I had the gray? same question. There's there's a couple of scenes, especially when she's in with the creature, her face looks gray. But the only, only what are you good, asking me for? I don't know. The only good thing I have to say about her in this film is she's going to have the distinction that not many women in these early Hammer films have is she probably wasn't dubbed. <laughs> wow. There was somebody dubbed in this film, but it wasn't the woman who, or any of the, either of the women who really don't say much anyway. Uh, the person who was dubbed was the drunk at the beginning of the film. He was the one at the very beginning, the one who saw the body being dragged through the city streets. Yeah, I don't think he actually has a name because in IMDb he's just listed as drunk. Howard Gorney is the actor's name. That's what I was looking for. His voice was dubbed, but everybody else, it's all their original voices. Uh, going back to the scene where they're thawing out the monster when Frankenstein brings Hans in, did it appear to you that Hans was kind of freaked out by seeing the frozen monster there? I had the impression that he didn't quite, even though he had seen some of the experiments that uh, Dr. Frankenstein had done bringing certain body parts to life, I don't think he thought that the story he was hearing was true. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It felt like, oh, shit, he really can do it. And he really did do it. Because at this point in the movie... I liked that moment. I liked that moment. Oh, yeah, I did too. But at this point in the movie, after that, Hans kind of falls away. We don't. He doesn't really do much the rest of the film. He kind of pokes Frankenstein a little bit here and there about Zoltan's involvement later on. He's kind of like, what are you going to do? Well, you can't do this, you know. But other than that, he's not very helpful anymore. Well, I did forget to say that when before they they jump started him. Well, Frankenstein does do brain <laughs> surgery on him to get the bullets out from earlier. So he uh. does he does have to do brain surgery, and then then the jump starting. So the the monster does come back sort of to life. He doesn't listen to any of the commands. He doesn't do anything. He just kind of sits there staring into space. And Frankenstein is convinced that it had to do with the being shot in the head. Because you know, they destroy everything that I do. Why won't they just leave me alone? He says a couple of times. He's start, kind of whiny. Yeah. He's not very evil. He's more emo at points. <laughs> the but, emo of Frankenstein. <laughs> but they do, you know, he's got the... The physicality of, of Frankenstein, or excuse me, of the creature has been reignited, but the mental spark hasn't happened yet. If only we knew somebody who could do things with brains and, and suggest that they wake up and follow my command. Hey! Hey, we met a hypnotist yesterday. Somebody get Zoltan. So they oh. go back into town. 
where they're not wanted, sneak into town, sneak into... Uh, they find Zoltan's trailer, and they go in there, and Zoltan's packing up. He's getting ready to leave. Yeah, he's been hassled by the police. Yeah, the know, police are rousting him to get out of town, so he's got he's upset with them. If I'm going to try to keep a low profile, I'm going to go back into the town that already chased me out again and then go talk to the guy who the police are already upset with and probably watching. But he invites him to come up to... <laughs> to see what's on the slab. Come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticipation. <laughs> Sorry, I went into Rocky Horror for a second. <laughs> Frankenstein tells Zoltan that he's got somebody that he doesn't think he could hypnotize, which, of course, Zoltan takes as a challenge. Because he says he can hypnotize anybody. So that's how he convinces him to finally come up to the to the chateau, the castle, to try to hypnotize. And ends up finding out that he's got to hypnotize the creature. Because he, the creature needs that mental spark. There's not a man born of woman that I cannot, yeah, uh-huh. Well, we'll see then. This will be interesting. That's right, because, you know, he's not born, so. Well, Zoltan's probably the evil character and the evil of Frankenstein. And he's got other ideas when he sees this giant monster of a man that he can hypnotize and put under his own control. Yeah, he does hypnotize him and the creature then stands up and and does the the Frankenstein walk. Frankenstein at this point is like I'm done with you Zoltan, wants to pay him and kick him out of the castle, but then he's like that creature of yours. He won't do as you tell him, you know. He has a brain, he'll learn to understand me. Oh, he'll understand you all right. He just won't obey you. That's all. If you care to wait until he comes to, I'll show you. All right? Now, young man, I'll have another one of these. Frankenstein doesn't believe it. They go back. Frankenstein tries to get the, the creature to do different things. He won't do it. At one point, uh, Zoltan says, do what he says. And the, the creature then does what? Frankenstein wants him to do. Zoltan makes this agreement that he's going to help, but he wants a third of whatever profits they're going to do because he wants to take the creature and go on the sideshow circuit, basically, and show him off. And Frankenstein reluctantly agrees because he needs to be able to do experiments on the creature and needs him to be able to follow his orders. So if he gives the orders to Zoltan, Zoltan gives the orders to the creature, then he's good. So even though he doesn't like him, he agrees to this to, to keep him working with the creature. Zoltan then has ulterior motives because he is going to go down at night, tell the creature, you're going to go and listen to me and steal some gold. And I'm going to go tell, I'm going to tell you where to go and get it. So the next thing we see is a creature entering town. The drunk sees him. The, uh, the creature goes into the church and steals a whole bunch of religious artifacts that happen to be made out of gold and brings them back to Zoltan in the middle of the night. Of course, the no one believes the drunk that this creature is in town yet. Yeah, you get to, you have to have your uh, cartoony drunk to see the monster for full effect. Should have been Michael Ripper. Well, the next morning, uh, they wake up. Frankenstein is very excited to get to work. Tells Zoltan that, you know, we need to start working on experiments, and Zoltan th- drops the line that, well, he may be too tired. Frankenstein does I don't think quite at that point understands what's going on. The whole time they're in the lab, the the mute 
beggar woman does see what's going on, but of course she can't hear or say anything about what's going on, so she's, she just sees Zoltan talking with the creature. The next night, Zoltan tells the creature that he's got a couple of people that he wants the creature to go and punish, including the, the head of the police department and the burgermeister. So the creature goes back into town and tears into the burgermeister's house and really brutally kills the burgermeister. Throws him up against the wall several times, just whips him around like a rag doll. He also kills the constable, goes back to the to the lab to the burgermeister or to the uh, to Zoltan. Zoltan sees the blood on the hands, and he's like, "I just wanted you to punish him. I didn't mean for you to kill them." He then sees that the beggar woman's there, and then he almost assaults the beggar woman. He's like, "Too bad you can't tell anybody what I'm doing or what I'm saying." And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if the if the Zoltan really wanted to do something with the beggar woman, why doesn't he just hypnotize her? There isn't anybody he can't hypnotize. Yeah, good point. I like the death of the Burgermaster. That was a brutal scene. I like that. Yeah. At this point, Frankenstein does find out because he sees the blood on the creature's hands and he throws Zoltan out of the house. Zoltan sneaks around to a back window that's barred tells the creature to come here to rip the the bars off to let him in and he tells the creature to kill Frankenstein so the creature picks up picks up one of the bars that's got a, a pointed end on it and goes into Frankenstein's office Zoltan follows the creature is kind of confused about killing I don't think he wanted to kill Frankenstein and ends up killing Zoltan and then the creature takes off and how much farther do we want to go into the story well, we have to mention the awesome green screen. Oh, God. Oh, yes. Oh, God. <laughs> that was the worst green screen. That whole sequence toy- toyed with my imagination, or at least parts of this movie anyways, because there was part, I think it was right before that, when they started out and they cut back and as they were showing something like a shot from way off in the mountains looking out over the valley and everything, and the mountain that they were on. And I thought... Wow, those painted backgrounds are really not, are really cool. They look really great. And then they cut to Peter Cushing on the uh, <laughs> carriage yeah. with the green screen. I'm like, oh my gosh! <laughs> I mean, it's 1964, so the technology isn't you know where we're used to now. But yeah, the matte paintings are amazing. They reused them in some later films. But yeah, that green yeah. screening of him on they didn't even need that shot. That's the thing. It was an unnecessary shot. Of Pete Cushing, <laughs> yeah. action hero Cushing, standing in a carriage, whipping these horses as if he's in some sort of chariot, you know? <laughs> I think he could, the they could have just had him standing there doing that in front of a painted background and not had to worry about the green screen at all, but yeah. who knows? Well, yeah. they, sh- they show uh, a, an establishing long shot of it, and it's obviously a stuntman in yeah. there, but you still can tell, you know, that's Frankenstein. He's standing up, he's... He's, he's racing back to, to the castle because he just escaped after they had arrested him for the murder of the um, Burgermeister and the police chief. But he's he's rushing back because the creature had been escaped and he, he needed to get back to confer with Hans. There was also a straight out of the props department, one standard riot of people with pitchforks and to go and attack the creature that he runs through. <laughs> Another universal element. Yeah. Yes. Just having the establishing shots would have been good enough, but there's a yeah. couple of uh, insert shots where we see it's actually Peter Cushing standing there, and they, it, it looks really bad. 
and the establishing shots would have would have been good enough because we see him steal the carriage we see him piloting the carriage we know that's him on there pretty rough it's unfortunate but you know peter cushing's an action hero in this movie because later on when the lab catches fire (laughs) after the creature gets drunk now the what i've read is that he he drinks the chloroform frankenstein's using chloroform on people a lot in this movie yeah, first yeah. He, he does drink some whiskey or wine or something. So he knows that there is something good in these bottles because he drinks oh, that. Yeah, good. And then Cushing tries to pour out some chloroform from another bottle to put in front of the creature's face to knock him out. The creature steals the bottle and takes a big swig of it. And that's when he starts going really crazy. But yes, as, as Derek was saying, the lab catches on fire. Peter Cushing is standing on top of the stairs, grabs a hanging chain and swings through the fire. They were going to do a stunt. They were going to have a stuntman do that. But Cushing was like, no, I want to do it. I can do it. Didn't you see Dracula? I can do this. So he does the stunt himself. And the way they did the fire, I mean, it's pretty good. I mean, we've seen fire in movies, you know, where they put the fire bar underneath the camera for the foreground and there's fire in the background. And there's this nice area for people to act in between. So Cushing didn't get burned by the fire, but it was still so hot. Nobody took that in consideration. He got burned. I'd imagine that chain was awful hot. He got third degree burns doing this scene, he said. Wow. Yeah. That was a cool scene. It was cool to see him swinging down. Man of action. Early on, I had mentioned that how much of my dislike for the Zoltan character and how when we meet him, I think that scene's good. But from that point on, I would love to change the second half of this film. And the way I would do it, early on in the film, we don't see the origin of this creature. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where he got the body. We don't know where he got the brain or anything. It's just already up in the contraption to to bring him back to life. So we get the events that happen in the film. He's frozen. They jumpstart him. Dr. Frankenstein realizes that we need that spark, mental spark in there. Frankenstein is a smart guy. Why does he have to get a hypnotist? Why doesn't he become a hypnotist? And he hypnotizes the creature. He hypnotizes the creature trying to bring back memories of the, of the brain in there to try to bring that mental spark. At this point, we see some flashbacks that either the brain or the body or whatever was killed by the police chief and the burgermeister for some reason. And that sparks his rage against them. And then we have the events that happen, you know, we don't have the gold stealing, but we have the creature wanting its revenge against the Burgermeister and the police chief for killing him originally. So now we have motivation for the creature to attack. And we have the same Dr. Frankenstein trying to stop and stop him and everything else that happens in the movie does. It's just we don't have the Zoltan character in the second half of the film. Write that down, Scott. Let's let's uh, let's go ahead and make us a movie. We'll start the Kickstarter campaign. We're good to go. <laughs> I think that's a lot stronger second yeah. half of the film because you're now the creature has a reason for doing what he's doing. I'm asking where you're coming from. And and if he didn't like the Zoltan character, I'm kind of, I could go either way with Zoltan. I mean, I feel like for a movie called the evil <laughs> of Frankenstein, you have to have an evil character and Frankenstein yeah. wasn't doing it. So I had, I enjoyed the snidely whiplashness of Zoltan. <laughs> Dudley do ride to the Mounties. Get out of that if you can. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, yes, it was pretty cheesy and over the top, but it was, I don't know, it worked well for me in the way he was making 
this pretty much at this point brainless creature going out and do this because you figure that brains at least the brain was already dead when we first saw him in the creature and then now it was 10 years later so there's going to be the fact that they're getting anything out of it as amazing as it is and the, the idea of that thing of that creature's brain being pretty much blank and zoltan planting things in it and it just carries them out uh robotically and stuff i don't know i that worked for me well if if they went the way that i said the title makes more sense yeah, True. Frankenstein's not evil. His creation is evil. He is the evil of Frankenstein. I would have liked this film a lot better if that is what the second half of the film was. Because you could have had a lot of the same set pieces. You could have had the fire. You could have had him being drunk. You could have had the the brutal scene with the, the Burgermeister. Everything still could have happened. You just wouldn't have had Zoltan there to initiate it. Because Frankenstein initiated it when he tried to spark the brain to get those initial memories you could have had him not being as good at hypnotism because he's just learning it and maybe he accidentally triggered that another thing with all the with all the uh, brain surgery and everything going on in this movie i thought it was interesting because it was and it's really it's something that's only highlighted because of what we know now in 2014 versus what they knew when this movie was made but they talked about when they first when they after they thought out the monster and they brought it back and he first got him to move he was screaming the monsters running around screaming holding its head and stuff and dr frankenstein mentioned at one point that he must be in tremendous pain because he just operated on his brain and this is only me, the nerd in me sitting here from 2014 looking back. But nowadays we know that there – I don't think there are any nerve endings in the brain. So there's – because they do a lot of surgeries now. You, if you watch like modern brain surgeries, they leave the patients awake while they're operating on the brain and stuff because there's no pain in there. So it's interesting just from that pure nerd speculation from going looking back on it that that w- doesn't really work. How many brain surgeries have you watched, Casey? <laughs> Well, granted, I do. I I'm basing it totally on that uh, one Travelocity commercial or whatever, where the guy's making the patient do his search for his trip and booking his hotel room. So everything that Casey knows about brain surgery comes from a Travelocity commercial. Yes. No, but you've seen it. I've read that before, <laughs> though. Actually, about there not being brain yeah. nerve endings in there, I believe. Yeah, that and eyeballs. I read weird stuff. Sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have necessarily a problem with Zoltan. I see where Scott's coming from. He does kind of overshadow the movie in terms of the uh, Scott, excuse me, as Casey said, the Steinle whiplash effect. As an actor, Woodthrop's always been that for me, this kind of over-the-top kind of slimy character. He does a very slimy type character in the skull as well. I would have liked more with the Baron, and I really would have liked a different type of monster. But while we were watching this, Casey, you sent us an email saying that you thought this might have been one of your favorites. I thought it was, but I'm, but after sitting through it, I don't think it is. And now I cannot think of what I was thinking, but it ties back to that sequence in the pre-sequel sequence in the lab, because that's where I saw it. And I, it was that trap door that they showed him uh, dumping the bodies down because the movie I'm thinking of is, I believe Dr. Frankenstein eventually used that trap door as an escape to get out of the lab when the commoners were coming down on him or the villagers, I should say. So now I'm confused on which movie I was thinking it was. Gotcha. Because the movie I'm thinking of, the reason I liked it so much, because it really, really focused on the fact that Dr. Frankenstein, it changed the movie from being about the, the Frankenstein movies, the Hammer Frankenstein movies, about being about the monster and about Frankenstein himself being the monster, Dr. Frankenstein himself being the monster, because right. of his totally disregard, total disregard for humanity 
and not caring about the consequences of what he's doing. All he wants to see is the, fur- the furthering of his scientific findings. But I, that's not this movie now that I've sat through it and watched it again. So I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> I'm sure a listener can point it out to us, though. Because our listeners know their stuff. Uh, yeah, they do. And if a listener has any thoughts about this movie, how can they? Uh, yeah, how can they do that? <laughs> well, they can email us at uh, podcast at nineteen fifty one downplace dot com. They can call us at area code seven six five two zero three nineteen fifty one and leave us a three minute voicemail. It will cut you off in three minutes. Or they can uh, find us on uh, Facebook in the nineteen fifty one downplace group. I know we kind of typically do our feedback after we've given our final thoughts. Do we have any other final thoughts about people of Frankenstein? I think we've kind of, at least I've kind of said everything I have to say about it. I liked it okay. I, I'm assuming that neither of you are going to bump anything on your top five for this. No. That's what I was wondering about with Casey, since he had said he liked this one so much in the email. So that's what I was trying to get. Not until I clarify it. Yeah. What I was thinking. But, I mean, it really, it all boils down to that means I just need to go watch all the Hammer Frankenstein movies again and That's figure the, out which one it was. God, being a horror podcaster is so hard. All the homework we have to do watching all these movies. I know. It's rough. <sighs> I think this movie had some good parts, but on the whole, it wasn't that good. It had some, a lot of things I liked, a lot of scenes I liked. I think it could be made better, but it's not one that I'll probably revisit. Yeah, I mean, I like the music a lot. I would listen to the music separate a lot if there was a separate soundtrack album for it. I don't know if there is, but I mean, there's a lot missing in this movie for me. A lot missing. And I was talking earlier about the TV shots of the inserts that they put, uh, they filmed for the television release. That's on YouTube. I was double checking. There's about eight minutes that you can find on YouTube, and it actually gives the beggar girl a name. Her name's Arena. In that, and they explain her background a little bit. So that's on YouTube. It's not on the Blu-ray release. There was a Blu-ray release of this last year. The Blu-ray only has the movie, the trailer, like a two-minute interview with the, uh, the woman who played the Burgermaster's wife, and then a, a half-hour making of documentary, which is pretty decent, but no commentary track or anything like that. Nothing from Kiwi? Nothing from Kiwi Kingston. So if you're a Frankenstein completist, I would recommend watching it. Oh, you should have all, you should own every Hammer film. Every single one. I don't whether you like it or not. You 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 owe it to Hammer, right? Oh yeah. Like the old Dark House, you have to have that in your collection. <laughs> Captain Kronos, you've got to have it in your collection. Yeah. And? Scott mentioned uh, <laughs> Scott mentioned Captain Kronos there. I mentioned this in the uh, 1951 Downplace group on Facebook, but I'll reiterate it here. Captain Kronos is now streaming on Netflix Instant Watch. So if you don't, if you're not sure about shelling out your hard-earned dollars for a Blu-ray release from Hammer, go watch it on uh, Netflix Instant Watch and then make sure, because I guarantee you probably end up going out and buying it afterwards because it's that good. But it all boils down to if you haven't seen it, now you have no excuses. I, I can't back that statement up. I have watched it and I have not gone out to buy it. Well, it's because, Scott, you're, I don't know, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I know there's something wrong with me, but it has nothing to do with that film. <laughs> I just like that we're mentioning Captain Chronos. You know, I'm actually worried because we've said Captain Chronos many, many times. And we have a tradition here on Downplace that whenever that gets mentioned, that stinger gets played. But Scott's doing the edit this month. Well, I just emailed him the stinger just in case. <laughs> All right, so what's coming up next month? Next month, we are going to do our special crossover episode with Disney Indiana. On 1951 Downplace, we're going to talk about Captain Clegg, 
Oh, yeah. I like that one a lot. It's uh, Peter Cushing again, and he gets to do some uh, some more action stuff. It's great. And I have invited Derek and Casey to join uh, my wife, Tracy, and I on the Disney Indiana oh, podcast yeah. to talk about um, Dr. Sin, a.k.a. alias the Scarecrow, which is Disney's take on the same source material. Very cool. So that's going to be in May. Uh, and then we're going to follow that up in June with uh, Sword of Sherwood Forest. And then in July, it's the Listener Pick Month. Listener Pick Month. So if you are a member of our Facebook group or a user of Facebook, get in there and join the group. May 31st is the deadline on the poll in the group page to decide what we're going to review later this year in our Listener Pick Month. As of right now, Fourth Side of Triangle is in the lead. Followed closely by Hands of the Ripper. And I haven't voted yet. I don't know if anybody's voted yet uh, out of us three. Casey, have you voted yet? I don't think so. Oh, uh, you're a liar. I see you right there. Oh, I guess I did. <laughs> <laughs> Casey voted for Rasputin the Mad Monk. Yep, I see him there, too. Yep. Well, there you go. I'm going to vote for the Vengeance of She. <laughs> Because I want to quit the podcast. I want to do an episode all by myself. <laughs> all by myself. Oh yeah. Hey, we didn't really have any proper feedback, you know, emails or voicemails, but we did see something in the iTunes store in a review that we got, which was awesome. Thank you for the review. But somebody commented that. Only like the last nine episodes were available on the feed. Yes. Uh, right now, all of the episodes are available. If you go over to our website at 1951downplace.com, you can find them all there. We've also hopefully fixed an issue that will, once we upload this episode, will force iTunes to re-read our feed and all of the episodes will show up again in iTunes. So hopefully that issue will have been fixed by the time you hear this. But they are all available on our website. So you can head over there and download them from there if you can't find them on iTunes. Uh, that was a, a comment left by Doc Force in the iTunes store when he gave us a review, a five-star review. So thank you for that. But we did have to juggle our schedule a little bit after the events of last month. And since we didn't cover a film last month, actually, The Evil of Frankenstein was originally going to be covered last month. So we did... Uh, juggle the schedule around a little bit, and if you go over to 1951 Down Place and click on the episode link or episode list link at the top of the page, you will see the updated list of episodes and when we're going to cover them. It is up to date. And again, big thanks to Casey and Scott for uh, working around my situation and you know, kind of accommodating me and, and working out the schedule and changing things up a little bit. So again, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And I always thought I. I thought it was, you know, asking a lot for us to go out of our way to learn to juggle. But, you know, I'm happy to do it for you, Derek. I appreciate that. Next time, um, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> all. I got nothing. It was the chainsaw juggling that really bothered me. I only lost three fingers. <laughs> well, it's, it's more than you need, right? I still have seven. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, it was fun to get back into the down place groove of things uh, missed it last month so thank you and we're glad to have you back oh you or at least i am <laughs> I, i'm not gonna speak for casey hey look at the time it's uh 